everyone. My name is Grant, and you are listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 6, Ottomans and Senussis. In the last episode, we covered the history of Libya through the rule of the Karamanlis, and we looked at their history of piracy. There was additional material that I was originally planning to put in that episode, but it would have made it longer than I had intended, and it was also just late getting out in the first place. So this episode is being written with the leftover material from that one. So it's probably going to be a bit shorter, but as I am writing and recording the script, I have no idea exactly, so let's pick up where we left off. It was 1835, and after several years of chaos in Tripoli, the Ottomans arrested the last Karamanli ruler, Ali II, and reasserted direct control from Constantinople. However, replacing a local dynasty with an appointed governor wouldn't be enough to restore order to Libya after the Karamanlis. In the last years of their rule, rebellions arose across the country to the point where very little outside the city of Tripoli was under their control, and by the very end, they couldn't even say that of Tripoli. So when the Ottomans came back in, they had a bunch of rebellions within the interior to put down and an economy to restart. They would only be partially successful at the first and absolutely fail at the latter. There were two major rebellions occurring in 1835. One was led by Yusuf Karamanli's old enemy, Saif al-Nasir of the Alawad Suleiman in the interior of the country, and another by Juma bin Khalifa, who was ruling the town of Yefren as the unrecognized king of the western Gebel in Cyrenica. At this point, the Ottoman military only controlled the city of Tripoli itself, and would first need to retake the entire province of Tripolitania, which would take about seven years. The admiral who led the fleet that removed Ali II from power, Tahir Pasha, had been put in charge of the effort to restore order. However, he was unsuccessful in dislodging Juma from Yefren, so in 1838 he was replaced by Ali Askar Pasha along with Mohammed Amin Pasha in 1842. And the two of them would be very successful in their campaigns against Juma, and would manage to capture him in 1842. However, his son, Muhammad, took command of the tribe and withdrew further into the interior of Libya, referred to as the Fazan. Peace was short-lived, unfortunately, because in 1854, Juma escaped his imprisonment and started up his revolt again. Turkish rule would only be restored to that part of Libya when Juma was killed in 1856. Saif al-Nasir was also captured in 1842, but unlike Juma, he was executed instead of being imprisoned. Despite the death of their leader, though, the Alawad Suleiman continued to resist the Ottomans into the 1870s. During this time, they withdrew further into the interior, gaining control of strategic portions of the Saharan trade routes, often coming into conflict and alliance with the remnants of Juma's forces. Along with getting the tribal elements of Libya under control, the Ottomans went through a series of administrative changes in the provinces. Under the Karamanlis, Cyrenica and Fazan were formally under their administration in Tripolitania, but under the renewed Ottoman rule, they were constantly playing around with the governance. They would establish separate governments for each province one year, unify them a few years later just to split them back up again. It also didn't help that there was a high turnover rate for governors of Libya. Between 1835 and 1908, there were 33 of them. That's basically a new governor every other year. Part of the reason for this was how difficult governing the province was between its weak economy and all the tribal rebellions. Because the provinces were so poor, the Ottomans couldn't find anyone willing to stay there long enough to set up a stable regime. I mean, after all, what's the point in governing a corrupt system if there's no wealth to be plundered from it? 
and between the eras of piracy and oil, there was no wealth to be gained in Tripoli. They attempted to improve their control of the interior by stationing soldiers at numerous forts and oases across the northern Sahara, reaching as far off as northern Chad. They tried to recruit locals into the occupation force, but these attempts were never really successful. The lack of control in the interior also meant that Libya was not always subject to the laws forced on the Ottomans by the Europeans. One example of this were the Tanzimat reforms, started back in the 1830s, but then really pushed on them after the Crimean War in the 1850s. The Tanzimat reforms were laws about property ownership as well as minority rights and European privileges. However, because the North African provinces were so hard to govern, most of Libya was not impacted by the Tanzimat reforms. Only in major cities like Tripoli did you see the Tanzimat enforced to any significant degree. The real power in Libya, however, was a Sufi religious order referred to as the Sanusi. The Sanusi order got its name from its founder, Muhammad ibn al-Sanusi. He was born in Al-Wasita on the western coastline of modern-day Algeria in 1787. His family claimed to be descended from the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. His early education was in local Zawiyas, a regional name for religious schools more or less the same as a madrasa. But in 1805, around the age of 18, he went on to study at the University of Karawiyan in Morocco. There he studied Maliki law, which is a school of Islamic jurisprudence. Maliki law emphasizes a hierarchy of sources for Islamic legal rulings, starting with the Quran as the highest authority, followed by the Sahih Hadiths, followed by the rulings of the four rightly guided caliphs, and finally followed by tradition and precedent that doesn't contradict any of the previous sources. Al-Sanusi became so proficient in his studies that he received numerous certificates that allowed him to become a teacher himself. This allowed him to acquire his followers who would also follow him out of Morocco and across North Africa. At this time, a student's education was usually completed by performing the Hajj. Al-Sanusi, like many students, decided to make a road trip out of the experience, making stops along the way across North Africa, staying at numerous mosques and universities, all the while preaching to crowds of people, spreading his message further. After performing the Hajj, he decided to stay in Mecca, where he became a student of Ahmad bin Idris al-Fasi. Al-Fasi and his followers were adherents to what some scholars refer to as Neo-Sufism. For those unfamiliar, Sufism is the spiritual or mystical focus of Islam. Someone who is a Sufi usually emphasizes the mystical or spiritual elements of that religion. It is not, however, a separate sect of Islam. The best comparison is that they are kind of like monastic orders within Christianity that focus on certain intellectual or spiritual pursuits. And they are, to my knowledge at least, exclusively Sunni. What makes Neo-Sufism different than traditional Sufism is that Neo-Sufism emphasizes an imitation of the life and practices of Muhammad and the early Muslims. Another Neo-Sufist ideology that you are probably more familiar with is Wahhabism, the brand of Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia and promoted by terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. This brand of Sufism was too radical for the authorities of Mecca, and so they expelled Al-Fasi and his followers from the city, and they went to a village called Asir further to the south. In 1836, Al-Fasi died, which resulted in a schism of his followers. Some decided to remain in Asir, where their master had died. Others decided to follow one of Al-Fasi's students, Muhammad Uthman al-Mangeni al-Katim, who led them into Sudan, where he eventually founded the Katimya Sufi Order, 
which is the largest order in the modern-day countries of Sudan, Eritrea, and Ethiopia. The majority of Al-Fasi students would become followers of Al-Sanusi, who decided to return to Mecca. For a short time, Al-Sanusi established his own school in Mecca, but the local councils were afraid of his growing power, and just like what happened with his master, Al-Sanusi and his followers were forced to leave Mecca in 1840. His students would follow him across North Africa, first into Cairo, where he was received just as well as in Mecca, meaning not very well. Part of why local authorities feared Al-Sanusi, aside from his large following, was what he preached. Al-Sanusi preached a pan-Islamic ideology, which local rulers found to be a threat to their own power bases. In his writings, Al-Sanusi opined about the concepts of ith-jihad, meaning individual effort, and taklid, meaning mere imitation. He wanted Muslims to do more than just imitate the superficial aspects of the Prophet's life. He wanted a worldwide revolution of Muslims taking the modern world by the horns and reshaping it to the Prophet's vision of the ideal Islamic world. This message was much more positively received by people living in rural areas than it was in the urban centers. Al-Sanusi saw similar reactions across North Africa, especially in areas under French influence such as Tunisia and Algeria, which had been outright annexed as part of France in 1830. The one place in North Africa that he did find support was in Libya, where the Sultan-appointed governor, Ali Ashkar, is said to have at least been friendly to the Sanusis, and some going so far as to claim that he had actually joined the order. And it would be in Libya that al-Sanusi would finally establish his own Sufi order. He would establish his schools in areas close enough to the cities as to attract followers, but far enough away that the limited resources of the Ottoman authority couldn't interfere in the internal affairs of the Sanusis. He supported the claim of Turkish sovereignty over Libya, despite also keeping themselves at a distance from their actual ability to enforce it. The Sanusis became the most trusted institution within Libya, which resulted in the governor making a deal with the Sanusis. This deal was that the Sanusi properties would be exempt from taxation in exchange for the Sanusis acting as tax collectors within the provinces. This arrangement worked out well in that the local populace trusted the Sanusis weren't screwing them over when collecting taxes, all the while the provincial government was receiving what little tax revenue was to be gained from the impoverished province. On top of performing tax collection for the Ottoman government, the Sanusis also provided some governance and social services to the semi-nomadic tribes of the interior. They served as teachers and conflict mediators for the Bedouins of the Central Sahara. The Sanusis also had influence outside the Ottoman provinces, stretching into the sultanates of the Eastern Sahara. These connections would become useful as the Sanusi became ever more concerned over European aggression within the Islamic world. Al-Sanusi is said to have made predictions about the fate of North African countries, predicting that Alexandria would be captured by the British and that Tripoli would be captured by the people of Naples. Al-Sanusi had returned to Mecca in the mid-1840s, but these predictions, it is said, are what led him to return to Libya in 1853. Al-Sanusi's return to Libya marked a transition for his order, which up to that point had been primarily focused on spiritual matters, but were now becoming more militant. The Sanusi monasteries set up around Libya were converted into fortresses. Al-Sanusi also set up a new headquarters for his order at Jogbub, which was an isolated spot that intersected Saharan trade routes. He wanted to further limit the Ottoman Empire's influence and authority over the Sanusis, so this positioned the order to begin exerting more influence over the Sahara, 
with the primary roads leading into southern Egypt and Sudan. This new strategy also involved ingratiating themselves more into the local society and becoming its representatives to the outside world. Becoming this involved in the Saharan trade routes inevitably resulted in the Senussis engaging in the Arab slave trade, which brought slaves procured in West Africa across the Sahara and into the Middle East proper. The city of Benghazi was a major hub for this east-moving slave trade that lasted into the early 20th century. The Sahara and the slave trade seemed to be inextricably linked, because when ISIS and Boko Haram in Africa revived the practice of slavery in the territories they controlled, slaves were being sold in auction blocks in Libya. A terrible legacy reborn. By the time of his death in 1859, the Senussi became an integral institution for both Libya and the whole Saharan trade and tax system, as well as becoming a bulwark against European encroachment from the south. Al-Sanusi was succeeded as head of the order by his son, Muhammad al-Mahdi al-Sanusi. But to distinguish him from his father, whom I have been referring to as al-Sanusi, I am going to refer to his son as al-Mahdi. Al-Mahdi was born in 1844, meaning that upon the death of his father in 1859, he inherited control of the most powerful institution in Libya at the not-so-ripe age of 15. A game of Islamic eschatology was being played with al-Mahdi from the time of his birth. For those who don't know, eschatology is a word that means the end of the world, or at least the study of the end of the world. If you, like myself, are at least somewhat familiar with the book of Revelations in the Christian Bible, then you can kind of get the idea. Within Islamic eschatology, there is a character called the Mahdi. The Mahdi is supposed to be a descendant of the prophet Muhammad, born from the line of his daughter Fatima. Depending on how the original text is interpreted, the Mahdi either comes to create violence and chaos at the end of the world, or comes to end it. By naming his son al-Mahdi, al-Sanusi was seen by some as preparing his son to fulfill Islamic end times prophecy. What made the chances greater was that al-Mahdi was believed to be descended from the prophet Muhammad through his daughter Fatima, just as his father was. What made this more auspicious is that al-Mahdi's mother's name was Fatima. And just for extra oomph, his father's full name, just as a reminder, was Muhammad ibn Ali al-Sanusi. Part of his name was Ali, the name of the Prophet Muhammad's cousin who had been married to Muhammad's daughter Fatima. Despite all of this cultural baggage on his shoulder, al-Mahdi was prepared to take the Sanusi order to new heights. Under his leadership, the Sanusi would reach somewhere between 1 and 3 million followers, expanding into Egypt, Chad, and other areas bordering the Sahara. Just as his father had relocated the order's headquarters further inland into Jagbub, he would relocate it even further inland to Kufra in 1895, which allowed them to further hamper European movement around the Sahara. Islamic resistance to the French was frequently attributed to the propaganda and organizational skills of the Sanusi. Islamic movements around the region sought the aid of the Sanusis, but under al-Mahdi's leadership, he refused to aid most of them, including that of another man who called himself the Mahdi in Sudan, but that's a story for another episode. Although al-Mahdi jealously guarded his borders and did everything within his powers to expand the Sanusi order, he refused to get involved in struggles he thought were reckless and likely to fail. Al-Mahdi would lead the Sanusi until his death in 1902, at which point he would be succeeded by his nephew, Ahmed Sharif As-Sanusi, whom I will be referring to as Ahmed Sharif from here on out. Al-Mahdi did have a son of his own, Muhammad Idris bin Muhammad al-Mahdi As-Sanusi, 
whom we are just going to call Idris, who was only 13 at the time of Almadi's death, which was considered too young to take command of the Senussis, despite the fact that his father did so at only two years older and had a bunch of advisors. However, Idris would eventually inherit his father's position within the order. Not only would he become the leader of the Senussis, he would eventually become king of Libya, but that is also another story for a later episode. Before Libya can have a king of its own though, it needs to get out of Ottoman hands. And this process began in the 1880s when Italian eyes began to stare hungrily at it. The Italian states had only unified in the 1860s, meaning that Italy was late to the game of empires. The great powers of Europe had been imperializing other parts of the world since the 16th century, while Italy was trying to achieve or maintain its independence and unification. By the 1880s, most of the easily acquirable colonies were already taken, which left the crumbling Ottoman Empire as one of the only places they hoped that they could carve out a peace for themselves. France had taken Algeria in the 1830s, along with Tunisia in 1881, the latter of which gave the British cover for taking Egypt in 1882. This left only Morocco and Libya up for grabs in the Mediterranean, the former of which was within France's sphere of influence. Italy had initially wanted Tunisia, but since that was no longer an option for them, they redirected their attention to Libya, which was on nobody's shortlist for potential colonial acquisitions. Italy made diplomatic overtures in order to get the other powers of Europe to recognize its interests in Libya. It's more accurate to describe their efforts as informing the other Europeans that Italy called dibs on Libya. It started with a treaty between Italy and Austria in 1886, in which they agreed to reciprocal compensation if either of them were to occupy some part of the Ottoman Empire. Basically, they agreed that if one of them was going to occupy a part of the Ottoman Empire, the other would also be entitled to occupy a portion. Or at least this is how Italy interpreted their treaty. In 1887, a series of communications happened between Italy and Britain, the latter of which was concerned about the expansionist urges of Russia. So, some agreements were made between the two powers in regards to the Mediterranean. Italy's foreign minister agreed to support Britain in Egypt if Britain agreed to help Italy with their acquisitions in North Africa, and both agreed to aid each other in the event of a third party interfering with either of their ambitions. However, these agreements were not formal, and only existed between the foreign ministers themselves, which the British did not feel obligated to keep. The biggest obstacle to Italy's goals in Libya was France, and after France took control of Tunisia, Italy saw them as their primary rival in the Mediterranean. Because of this, most of Italy's diplomatic efforts were focused on attaining aid from other powers in the event of a war with France, which none of the other powers of Europe were anxious to get into. It wasn't until 1890 that Italy tried working with France themselves to acquire Libya, but France's price for cooperation was a bit too steep. They demanded that Italy break off their alliance with Germany and Austria in exchange for their acquiescence to Italy's aims in North Africa. The price was too much for Italy without a stronger guarantee from France, so the negotiations broke off. In 1891, a new treaty of alliance was made between Italy and Austria which had more military guarantees than the old one in exchange for Italy dropping provisions for Austrian aid in the Mediterranean. Germany also signed a new agreement with Italy out of concern for the renewed relations between France and Russia. In this agreement, Italy and Germany agree to recognize and maintain the current status quo of North Africa unless they see the status quo as unsustainable, 
at which point Germany agrees to support Italy's occupation of North African territories as needed. This agreement simultaneously gives Italy all the cover it needs to take Libya, and none at all. Because whether the situation in the Mediterranean is sustainable or not, in reality, is up to Germany. If Italy decides on their own that the situation in North Africa can't be maintained, Germany isn't obligated to do anything. This leaves Italy's ambitions in North Africa at the whim of another power, just like all the prior ones. Things would begin to change for Italy in the latter half of the 1890s, when both they and France suffered imperial setbacks. Italy suffered an embarrassing defeat in Ethiopia in 1896, while France faced a defeat in 1898 during the Fashoda Crisis, which resulted in British control of the Sudan, giving the British control of a north-south route for a railroad going from Egypt to South Africa, rather than west-east route under French control. The two powers came to a new understanding between 1899 and 1901, in which France declared that they have no interests in Libya, while Italy declared that it had no objections to the French actions in Morocco. This agreement, most historians agree, left the initiative with France, meaning that Italy could only go for Libya after France went after Morocco. In 1902, Italy obtained a declaration from Britain, saying that any change in Libya's status quo would be in conformity with Italian interests. Like usual, Italy saw more in the agreement than Britain did. The British foreign minister said before Parliament that they were under no obligation to respect Italian interests in North Africa. This resulted in some awkwardness in 1911 when war broke out between Italy and the Ottomans, and the British had to comb through their foreign ministry archives to find the original agreement. This was a very common problem for early 20th century foreign policy. Foreign ministers had a habit of making agreements with other powers, not only secret to the public, but often secret to the rest of their governments. After all of these agreements, Italy felt safe enough to begin their encroachment on Libya, despite the other great powers not having the same understanding of those agreements. In 1908, Italy used its navy to intimidate the Ottomans into allowing them to establish an Italian post office in Tripoli, which would be run by the Italian government. During the early years of the 20th century, the Bank of Rome attempted to gain a foothold in Libya, but the Ottoman government resisted, and did so more insistently after the Young Turks Revolution. The bank made a bad impression in Libya on multiple grounds. Many of the investments they made ended up being losses, and yet despite that, they continued. This was seen by locals, as well as by Ottoman officials back in Constantinople, as a means of Italy entrenching itself in the local economy to either make the locals dependent upon foreign money, or to give Italy an excuse to occupy Libya at some later point. As Italy's interest in the Ottoman territory grew, more Italian nationalists settled in those territories. Italian churches in Palestine and Syria demanded protection by Italy rather than France, who had traditionally been the protector of Catholics in the Ottoman Empire. Italians also began settling in Libya, but this made the Ottoman government very concerned. In late 1910, Italian ministers told the German ambassador in Rome about Ottoman officials in Libya blocking Italian nationals from buying land in those provinces. At this point, Italy had not yet decided on military intervention in Libya, and preferred a German mediation. The Germans were willing to do so, but only to the point of where all foreign nationals were treated equally, rather than Italian preferential treatment. As 1910 turned into 1911, the likeliness of war increased. Rumors spread throughout the diplomatic circles about Italy's growing ambitions towards Libya. 
Word of these ambitions reached Sevket Pasha in Constantinople, but he was always more concerned with the European portion of the Ottoman Empire due to his base of power residing in Ottoman Macedonia. However, he did seem concerned enough about Libya that he sent about 20,000 Mauser rifles and 2 million cartridges to Tripoli. However, this meant very little due to the fact that the Ottomans had withdrawn a large percentage of the troops they had been stationed in Libya and restationed them in Yemen to put down a local rebellion. By the time Italy finally declared war, Libya was more or less unguarded. And after three decades of being jerked around by the rest of Europe, they decided to take action. And I think that's where I'm going to call it quits for this episode. The next episode should be closer to normal length, and in that episode we will finally get to the war that finally drove the Ottomans out of North Africa, and would pull the Italians into yet another war they were not prepared for. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com, or on Twitter at hmme underscore podcast, or my personal Twitter at Grant G. Hurst. If you're interested in the sources used for this episode, you can find them in the show notes for this episode at historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. I was also hoping you guys could take the time to leave a rating and review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps the show get more attention, which means more listens. And with that, thanks for listening.